0: So the following recording you're going to hear is the AERA, which is the American Educational Research Association Scholar Lecture for the Special Interest Group for Physical Education, so SIG93. And this year's award winner was Jan Wright, And uh, the audio for the introduction, which is done by Richard Tinning, is a little bit uh, poor. So you might have to kind of turn up the volume there for a little bit to get that through. Um, But then Jan Wright gives a lecture followed by a question and answer session. So um, hopefully you'll enjoy this. She gave a really great presentation and the... Um, video of the presentation is available on the ARA SIG ninety three website that I'll link in the show notes. So here uh, comes Richard Tinning first, and then with an introduction, and then
1: Jan Wright with her SIG scholar lecture for twenty twenty two. Physical education: the contribution to the field of educational research more broadly was recognised in 2014 when she was made Distinguished Fellow of the Australian Association for Research and Education. Jan Perth was trained as a physical education teacher at the University of Sydney. Her particular passion and interest was then, and still is, in dance and movement. After teaching physical education in high schools for some years, she then became a teacher educator at the University of Wollongong. Dan also trained in sociology and and linguistics, was one of the first feminist scholars in our field to demonstrate the gendered nature of discourse in physical education classes through empirical linguistic analysis. Some of you may read the classic paper in 1990 or published in 1990 in the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education called I Say What I Mean, said Alice, an analysis of gendered discourse in physical education. Jan's work has paid close attention to the body as central to subjectivity and as necessary to understanding it of the self. And this theme has been taken up in her studies of movement based pedagogies, for example, Feldenkrais, and, and published papers examining media constructions of gender and physical activity. The more recent research draws on feminist post structural theory to critically engage issues associated with the body. Health and physical activity. Many of you will have read a chapter in the Handbook of the Physical Education titled Physical Education Research from Postmodern, Poststructuralist, and Postcolonial Perspectives. Jan has also won prestigious research grants in Australia, in Canada, in the UK, and in New Zealand. And her funded research projects include a socio cultural analysis of eating disorders. in Preteen Boys and Girls, Childhood Obesity, Agency and Responsibility, together with longitudinal projects, including Young People, Physical Activity, and Physical Culture. She has also, of course, authored and co-authored of numerous books, including The Obesity Epidemic, The Biopolitics of the Obesity Epidemic, and Critical Inquiry and Problem Solving in Physical Education. Anne has been a member of the Australian National Curriculum Health and Physical Education Advisory Panel, and she also sits on the Editorial Board of Sport Education Society and Sociology of Sport Journal. For many PhD students, attest a test of a significant impact on their scholarly lives, and many of them have gone on to become significant academics in their own right. I can think of no better scholar to receive the Catherine D. NS Outstanding Scholar Award. Jan's lecture today is titled, Looking Outward and Elsewhere, The Case for Interdisciplinarity and Social Theory and Physical Education. Jan and
2: Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's quite moving to have, to listen to someone um, actually talk about you. Uh, like it, it's in and in itself, it's one of the, the highlights of a career, I think, to um, have other people Talk, talk about it's quite moving. So, like the first thing I want to do is thank Richard. I haven't spoken to him for a very long time, and it's lovely to see him there on screen uh, for for nominating me for the award. And I also want to thank the the Sig um, for considering me for the 2022 Catherine Award, and for the committee for um, granting me that award. So it's a great honor and privilege to accept the award and to be able to join you live. It's just really exciting to join you live um, at ARA to present the lecture. And before I go on, I just want to say it's it was actually really nice to be at your business meeting and it made me think that when I, um, I'm going to have a little chat with some of our SIG um, organisers and see if we can set up some connections so that um, we're not quite so Isolated from each other because of the inability to travel. So, to get on to the lecture anyway. So, after all those initial anxieties when Jean sent me the uh, email, and I, I still get quite anxious about um, both presenting or being asked to write things, I have to say that preparing for the presentation has given me immense pleasure. As someone who's retired, and for whom COVID restrictions have meant I've become quite happy to be a little isolated from the working of the academy, I'm afraid particularly my academy at the moment, the invitation has prompted me to go back over old papers and to canvas more recent discussions of contemporary issues, to, to actually ask who are the philosophers, sociologists and education scholars, and what are they saying about COVID, for example? You know, is there anything I really need to address? Um, I wanted to make sure that what I had to say was both relevant and current. Only a small amount of that research has gone into this presentation, but I really enjoyed it. And I do feel more connected um, to the field and also um, to some of the broader issues that have been considered. So my first response after receiving the email from Jean was a bit of a bout of nostalgia. I remembered my many attendances to AERA from the early 1990s to around 2008. I remembered that I had photos of my first attendance in AERA in what I think was 1991. This was my first overseas study leave or sabbatical as a lecturer at the University of Wollongong. I was fresh from the completion of my thesis, where as Richard pointed out, I'd used post structuralist theory to investigate how teacher talk contributed to gendered subjectivity in physical education lessons. So here I was newly um, graduated, ready to change the world. I was all fired up, um, ready to bring post-structuralism as theory and empirical resource to PE. That's been a bit of a bumpy road, but um, I'm still continuing and this presentation is part of that process. So I had a few photos. I had, just looking at the people who came into the room, I suspect most of you have no idea who these people are, but you may know their, um, you may recognise their names. You can see me, I think, <laughs> you recognise me. Um, and then right at the back is Alison Dewar, and I'll talk more about Alison in a minute, and Judy Placek nobody so far has been able to help me with the other um, two people. But this is um, a, a, a photo of a few more of the, the key players. Again, um, I had to um, email Inez Brevigno and then Mary O'Sullivan um, to try and get names for most of these people. Neither of them could, nom- uh, could name the first person on the left, But I think you should all know Kathy Ennis, then um, behind Kathy is Pat Dodds, Jackie Diggs is right at the back, Kay Williamson, um, who was from Chicago at the time, remember, uh, next, and Sandy Stroot, and um, nobody could name the next person, so if anyone um, at the end can do that, it would be good to fill in the gaps what I remember I'll just well I'll I'll address who these people I wonder if any of you can name who the third person in this one is you've got Alison Dewar at the back got Judy Plasek in green and the other woman is Linda Bain so I hope you all um, remember Linda Bain's work anyway what I remember most visibly from my ARA was the Invisible College, and I was sorry to hear that these haven't been able to continue these at the moment. There are about 20 people sitting in a circle. I remember particularly Daryl Seentop, who was opposite me, Larry Locke, who was on my right, and Linda Bain, who was around on my left. These scholars stood out, firstly, because I was very familiar with their reputations, but also because they were the key players in a controversial discussion initiated by my soon to become very close friend and colleague, Alison Dewar. This was my first meeting with Alison. I was on my sabbatical and I was about to go and stay with all these people who had only been names. And one of the first ones after staying with Mary O'Sullivan was Alison Dewar um, in Canada. Allison was arguing passionately the case for the inclusion of feminist and particularly lesbian scholarship in JTPE. With several editors of JTPE present, it became a very heated discussion with Linda Bain supporting Allison's case. Looking back over journals in the field at that time, and I would say still pretty much now, it seems that Quest is In America anyway, Quest is most open to to research and discussions that draw on social theories such as feminism, race theory and the various post theories that are widely used in education and HPE scholarship and research today. This may be a controversial claim and we can discuss it further in question time. However, memory prompted my topic today. I want to argue with other scholars, such as Linda Bain, Stephen Estes in his 2003 Dudley Allen Sargent commemorative lecture, and most recently in their introduction to the 2021 JTPE special issue, 21st century physical education in the United States with Philip Ward, Hal Lawson, Hans van der Maas and Murray Mitchell, that we need to look outward and elsewhere for new ways of thinking and researching in our field if we're going to serve the field and its purpose as well. This goes to my second part of my title. This means looking beyond the familiar, beyond our own and closely related fields such as kinesiology, and even what we're comfortable with in education and to look elsewhere to other geographical locations. And it was great to see um, Dylan's Um, post from Strathclyde got such a a response, but to look at to research from South America, Europe, particularly Spain, Scandinavia, and the UK, because they're the people that publish most, I think, in the English-speaking journals, and Australia and New Zealand. In saying that, I mean, looking beyond that which is comfortable to to research, uh, um, beyond following established research traditions in the field and looking to ideas and theories that might disturb, unsettle, but which may also inspire different ways of seeing, valuing and doing research and thereby coming to different conclusions. I will address the uh, notion of looking to other disciplines and other spaces within the academy first. There have been many arguments for the value of interdisciplinarity, but I also acknowledge there are many debates about the meaning of the term and of the value of interdisciplinary work. Research funding bodies, at least in Australia, ostensibly reward it, but often have few mechanisms to deal with this assessment, for example. But most of the definitions of interdisciplinarity point to the added value of integrating information. Techniques, perspectives, concepts and or theories from two or more disciplines or bodies of specialized knowledge, in order to advance understanding or to solve problems whose solutions are beyond the scope of a single discipline or area of research practice. And this notion of crossing boundaries recurs in um, much of the, the work along the way, which has talked about expanding how we think. In their introduction to a special issue that I've already referred to in the special issue in JTPE, Philip Ward, interestingly, the self-identified interdisciplinary scholar Hal Lawson, Hans van der Mars, and Murray Mitchell argue that in these times, everyone everywhere is experiencing uncertainty and stress stemming from this rare combination of complicated, disturbing events and unprecedented challenges. And America's institutions, including schools, colleges and universities are already changing in fundamental ways. They take up a point made by Estes in his lecture that sameness, standardization and homogenization, Estes refers to it as specialization, will not endure in the same ways As the 21st century continues to unfold. They argue that we need innovative research and development initiatives to chart courses towards desirable futures. It necessitates the kind of boundary crossing and bridge building needed to craft programs and policies which appropriately meet the the evolving demands of 21st uh, 21st century America. While these authors are referring to much more than research, for instance, they point to the importance of recognizing diversity in people, places, organizational designs and policies. I would argue that looking outward and elsewhere and utilizing theory productively can assist in constructing new intellectual and affective scaffolds that address some of the outcomes they seek. That is better futures for students, schools, families, and society informed by a strong social justice agenda. It is certainly going to look take looking beyond what is comfortable and familiar. It will require tools for reflection and for ways of theorizing contexts and relationships from those within classrooms to the recontextualization of research in policy curriculum. And practice. My argument is that we need to look beyond those disciplines with which the field is most familiar to places less often looked to in physical education research, that is the humanities and social sciences, as a way of bringing new ideas, ways of working and thinking about worlds, selves and relationships to the field. There are many examples of how this has advanced the field in the past. And I'm going to do a very risky thing, which is to actually name some people. And so there will be people left out of this and I am looking primarily at the past. So I'm not really acknowledging many of the um, newer researchers who are uh, taking up um, different kinds of theories, but also looking to other disciplines. For example, these from my perspective include Linda Bain, we use feminist theory and post-structuralism um, look at the hidden, to look at the hidden curriculum. Kim Oliver, looking at, we're using critical theory, feminism and activism. David Kirk, history and sociology. John Evans, sociology, theories of embodiment, capital and social class. Hal Lawson, sociology and policy studies. Richard Tinning, critical theory. And Katie Fitzpatrick, post-structuralism and sociology. So there are certainly many newer and younger researchers, and I'll refer to some of them at the end. And I also recognise in one of the round tables that there are um, young, uh, well, I don't they're young, that might be an um, implication, but there are um, graduate students um, who are working and other um, academics who are working with um, critical research and um, social theory and, and using theories derived from the humanities and social sciences. So in a different way, all of the scholars I have mentioned have gone beyond the usual in PE and have drawn on social theory or various social theories to identify and explain uh, phenomena in ways that make what has been familiar strange. And this is something that will be developed throughout. So this brings me to the second part of my presentation, the argument for the value of theory in physical education research. As a researcher and frequent reviewer of research papers and research educator and supervisor, this is a theme that I'm very passionate about. In my Australian Association for Research in Education President's address in 2010, I made an argument for the necessity of theory in quality education. And in my Beer Scholar lecture, I made the same kind of argument pointing to physical education research. And I see that people continue to make this argument. So it's not a new theme either in education or in physical education, but it seems to need to be reiterated. Um, One of those who um, was part of that um, reiteration of the importance of theory was the late Catherine Ennis. Catherine Ennis writes in her 2009 paper, a theoretical framework Um, a theoretical framework, central piece of a research plan in JTPE, that the most critical part of the research plan is the theoretical framework. A theoretical framework provides you with both structure and boundaries within which to work. Theories are usually composed of interrelated ideas that explain or propose to explain some phenomenon. Your theoretical framework framework, organises a complex environment like a physical education class and helps you to know where to look, what questions to ask and which answers are most likely to provide insights. I would go a little further and together with the authors of Thinking with Theory in Qualitative Research, Alicia M. Jackson and Lisa Mazai, I would argue in uh, keeping with the theme of this presentation, that the value of theory lies in its capacity to enable us to consider how knowledge can be opened up and proliferated rather than foreclosed and simplified. This is not easy. Researching with the assumption that you are working towards certainty, towards foreclosure and simplification is very seductive, but it can hamper innovation and different ways of approaching problems. The idea that theory unsettles can challenge the taken for granted. And to be honest, um, it can sometimes just be plain difficult to understand um, some of the language of theory. It's the challenging space. And it's one that divides researchers, those comfortable with theory and those less so within educational research. Maggie McClure, for example, describes the resistance to theory in a paper presented at Bira in 2009, The Offence of Theory. She begins her presentation by saying, I'm interested in how theory offends. What is the nature of the perceived threat? And what might this tell us about the insubordinate potential of theory? I suggest that theory's capacity to offend is also its power to unsettle, to open up static fields of habit and practice. And I understand what she means about theory's capacity to offend. Over many years as a research professor, I have been responsible for a subject called research proposal that was designed to assist students move from early ideas to a draft proposal for presentation approval. From the student's point of view, the most difficult and frightening component of this subject was the conceptual or theoretical framework as they struggled with the very idea of theory and the place of it in their work. In a similar example, Pat Sykes, now Emeritus Professor at Sheffield University, wrote about how when she told her students she was writing a discussion paper on the necessity of theory, they were divided into two groups. Those who found it scary and frightening and approached the idea with fear and loathing, and those a smaller group who said that theory excited them. Theory goes on to, uh, Sykes goes on to ask, what is it about education and educational research that gives rise to this avoidance of and timidity regarding theory? This divide seems to be repeated amongst academics Amongst staff at my own institution, there's something of a marker between those who do theory, mostly social and cultural theory, and those who see themselves as more down to earth, their work more connected to practice. The contrast is constructed in terms of those who belong to what Shun describes as the swamps of practice, the people who get their hands dirty and those in the rarefied atmosphere of the ivory tower. Such a division creates hierarchies and snobberies. Theory seems to be thought of as something esoteric, separate from practice, often thought of as critical, and I'm not using critical in this paper deliberately in a negative way. This is exemplified very clearly in the way Sherry Mark's doctoral students reflected on their usefulness of Jean Anion's book, in the um, the review of their review of theory and educational research towards critical social explanation, so they reflect on their understanding of theory, and their language is very interesting. It, it again um, it reiterates language that you see um, commonly coming from those who find theory either challenging or um, not um, relevant to their work. You can see in this quote how originally they thought of theory as unnerving and mystifying, with application only to the ivy walls of academia, removed from real life situations. However, their reading of the chapters in the book where Anion students explain how they identified and worked with theory in their own doctoral research changed their thinking. It enabled them to see theory as a tool that enhanced their research And was relevant to the everyday lives of people and practice. But I'm sympathetic with the research students and academics struggling with theory. As I said before, the language of some theory is not easy, and there seems to be a proliferation of theories, post-humanism, socio-materiality, place-based theory, practice architectures, all these um, different words. But It's not about using all of them. It's about finding a theory that works for you. So what counts as good theory has changed over time. And and I'm going to um, go back a bit because I think so far as I've been using theory um, up to this point, it's as though there's a shared understanding of the meaning of the term. And this is misleading. I'm sure that if I canvassed understandings of the term amongst those present, then our meanings would differ markedly. And I'm sure that's one of the things that will come up in our questions and comments. To clarify my own use of the term in this presentation, and I should say the way in which Anion has used it, and um, um, I'd say um, um, Sykes um, and McClure have used it. Um, is probably more about social theory, So, but I want to go back a little and look briefly at how what counts and is valued as good theory in education research has changed over time. What theories or theory have had pre- precedence within and between fields in education research, including PE research? because I think it's, as a post researcher, it's, it's quite useful to look at how power operates within our field in terms of what can be said, what can be researched, what can get through into journals um, and so on. What forms of theory dominate research at any one time impacts on how research gets conducted and what counts as good educational research. How any theory gets taken up And by whom depends on the power of particular social, political and cultural positions and what identified needs have currency and there are various authorities and gatekeepers who influence this, including but not only journal editors. um, Where, for example, PE or kinesiology is situated in the university, whether it's situated in the sciences faculty or in an education faculty promotion committees research team leadership um, and so on and long-term traditions. To illustrate how what counts as good theory has changed over time, I want to refer to an early discussion of theory in the American Education Researcher in 1974 by Patrick Suppers in his presidential address and then refer to a collection of four papers in the journal Discourse from a symposium entitled Educational Research and the Necessity of Theory, chaired by Stephen Ball. Both these scholars speak to educational researchers about the necessity of theory in good educational research, but what they mean by theory and the work they see theory doing could not be more different. In his address, uh, Suppers argues for the role of educational research in developing theory from sound scientifically informed empirical studies. As a mathematician, it's not surprising that for Supper's the most useful resource for achieving this is statistics. He says, the Bible of much, if not most educational research is a statistical Bible. And the best developed theory used in educational research is the theory of the statistical design of experiments. For Suppers, what theory should be doing in educational research is, I quote, to seek the mechanisms or processes that answer the question of why a given aspect of education works the way it does. Such theory then provides guidance for policy and practice. It should short circuit the need for reflection, what he calls natural intuition, or action without evidence. As he says, It is often thought and said that what we most need in education is wisdom and a broad understanding of the issues that confront us. Not at all, I say. What we need are deeply structured theories in education that drastically reduce, if not eliminate the need for wisdom. Suppers refers to those other researchers of his time, such as Dewey, John Holt, and Charles Silberman, who were studying practice by spending long hours observing classrooms and developing theory using methods of problem solving as romantics, as intellectually weak, and suffering from the absence of the felt need for theoretically based techniques of analysis. For example, he writes, and this is the quote up there, the newest version of the naive problem solving viewpoint is to be, found in, um, to be found in the romantics running from John Holt to Charles Silverman, who seem to think that simply by using our natural intuition and by observing what goes on in classrooms, we can put together all the ingredients needed to solve our educational problems. He deplores their influence, but is sanguine that they will not last. And I quote, the continual plague of romantic problem solvers in education will only disappear, as have other plagues of the past, when the proper antidotes have been developed. And these antidotes that we found in, and I quote again, the deep running theories of the kind that have driven alchemists out of chemistry and astrologers out of astronomy. When I read these quotes, my first response was to chuckle at how Suffers had got it wrong, you know, how things had changed. Certainly, we know that John Dewey's theories, for instance, pragmatism, still has wide currency. But in preparing for this presentation, my own certainty was shaken. While there were indeed major challenges to the dominance of the scientific empiricist version of theory development, even in the 1970s, with the emergence of new paradigms, and the appeal of theories that address social inequalities, the kind of approach that he espouses, one that promises answers to the practical problems of effective and efficient practice, continue to have considerable appeal. I would argue that in some fields of education, it continues to dominate in ways that reject other approaches other approaches as legitimate. At this point, I just want to emphasize that I am not talking about a qualitative versus quantitative divide. Um, And we can talk later, maybe in the the question time, about Jenny Gore's um, latest approach, which combines both qualitative and quantitative methods with a very strong um, basis of social theory. So I think it also helps here if we understand that Um, theory means different things in different disciplines, and this isn't um, a a kind of complete explanation, and there may be um, other definitions of theory, but I think this captures um, most that sort of um, stand out and are important. And I want to reiterate that interdisciplinarity here means both recognising this and seeking out colleagues who work with theory in different ways from those to which you are used. So One of the the definitions of theory is that theory is the outcome of rigorous empirical work using scientific methods, where theory is needed to generate explanations of underlying processes and mechanisms. A second um, use of the term theory is where theory is used to interpret, so most interpretive research, to make the strange familiar, deepening and broadening understandings of everyday meanings, actions and experiences. And the third could be said to be critical and or social theory used to make the familiar strange and emancipatory purpose. In this presentation, I would argue, and you can take me to task if um, I've got it wrong, that if we look at the research in uh, the PE field, it is the first and second understandings of theory which inform most of the scholarship. In the rest of the paper, I make a case for the value of social theory, the last Um, meaning for theory, particularly in these times when the impact of rapidly changing social and political structures, increased economic inequalities and cultural diversity cannot be ignored. So social theory. I'll begin by explaining what I mean by social theory. Theory that makes the familiar strange. Here I draw on a collection of four papers in discourse from um, Ball's Symposium at Bira, Education Research and the Necessity of Theory. Ball has a very practical approach. He talks about a toolbox, and it's a metaphor that I use often with my own students. Theory has to be useful, has to be useful to your purpose. So he talks about theory as both constructive in providing tools to make sense of our data and for thinking about the relationships of our data to social processes and social structures. From Ball's perspective, contemporary social theory should not only encourage researchers to avoid foreclosure of ways of describing the world, but should also expect that they can can continue to be reflexive about theory as well as using theory to reflect, he writes Working with Foucault and Bourdieu means giving up on spontaneous empiricism, causal epistemologies, theory by numbers, and constantly struggling against governmentalities of scientism to find a proper rigor, a thoughtful and practical rigor that goes beyond the niceties and safety of technique to find a form of epistemological practice that is not simply self-regarding. In the discourse collection of paper, Ball discusses how Foucault and Bourdieu have enabled his analysis of social class. David Gilborn and Deborah Udell demonstrate the utility of critical race theory and Foucault and Judith Butler to their project of challenging racism and educational inequalities. And the value of these kinds of papers is that you see exemplifications of how theory can be used, which from my point of view, inspire your own thinking about, um, you know, how you might mobilize theory for your own purposes. And and that's, I I think, one of the values of reading um, papers and more contemporary papers that um, draw on social theory. So in terms of social theory, I would situate myself in this kind of tradition. There have been many developments since then, but I found the work of Foucault in particular, but also Bourdieu and Basil Bernstein, which is inevitable if you're working with John Evans, the most useful in my own work. My colleagues and doctoral students have extended this into post-humanist theories and theories around social materiality, while still using Foucault's concepts when they are relevant to the analysis. In this last section of the paper, I wanna provide some examples of how theory has worked for me. And this choice of words is important. Working with theory is not about choosing a theory because it's trendy or seems sophisticated. It is about choosing theories that enable you to achieve your purpose, to provide ways of identifying, understanding, and then explaining or theorizing a problem. It provides the means to address the why question not in supers, ter- uh, supers terms, um, in terms of the why, which is looking inward, but the why by looking outward. How does context um, tell us why certain uh, phenomenon might occur? For me, the excitement of working with data is often about finding something in the data that needs to be understood and which I do not yet have the conceptual tools at my disposal to do so. The reading and talking with colleagues that is often necessary to help make sense of the data is, for me, part of the way of growing as a researcher and has continued. My my most recent um, research with people in sociology and cultural studies um, around young people's um, meanings of health and uh, in early childhood uh, settings has really, it's been one of the most enjoyable aspects of being a researcher the kind of intellectual growth that all of us experience from those kinds of conversations. In my case, my first encounter with social theory was exactly like that. When I began my doctoral research, my framing of the problem was loosely informed by feminist assumptions that what was said in classrooms contributed to gender relations. At this point, I assumed that I could just identify sexist language. And this would enable me to point to the construction of gender. So I collected wonderful detailed data by recording PE teacher interactions. They actually wore um, quite a hefty recording um, device around their um, necks um, with their students and took extensive field notes. I transcribed every one of my recordings very carefully. However, to my chagrin, I could not identify any obvious instances of language that positioned boys or girls in particular ways. No one said anything particularly sexist, which is not surprising since I was there taking notes at the time as well. I was stuck where to go next with all of these data. Reading the text closely, there did seem to be patterns in the ways the teachers interacted with the female students which were different from the ways they interacted with the male students. And these were both single sex and mixed classes. For example, I noticed there were lots of uses of just, just try, just watch with the female students and more direct language, do this, throw the ball, etc., with the male students, but how to make sense of this and how to talk about it. Fortunately, I had, and still have very good colleagues and friends in my faculty who were linguists and were more than happy to workshop texts of teacher talk. They pointed me in the direction of systemic functional linguistics, which in turn led me, uh, which in turn led me on my own interdisciplinary education in linguistics, social semiotics, and post-structuralist theory. I can't thank my colleagues and those who taught me about social and cultural theory enough. They opened up new ways of seeing that made sense to me and have served me very well since. More recently, much of my work has been about exploring children and young people's meanings of health in the context of the health imperatives associated with the obesity epidemic. And that's in quotation marks. Um, my latest work has involved utilizing the concept of biopedagogies derived from Foucault's concept of biopower as a way of analyzing truth claims advanced in obesity discourse. I and my colleagues, um, particularly Lisette Burroughs and Dina Lay, have used the concept to understand the effects of health discourses on how people come to know and act on their own and others bodies, and to explore the implications of this for health and physical education curriculum. For example, to understand why an elementary school child might draw this picture in response to the prompt to make a plan to show what you could do to test your own fitness. I'm just gonna leave that there for a minute. Um, I'm not going to talk about it, we can talk about it more, but you need um, certainly need to go beyond the immediate to the social context to try and understand why this drawing may have occurred. In our chapter in Fitzpatrick, Lay and Wright, Social Theory and Health, the book Social Theory and Health, we go further to explore how biopedagogies are implicated in the pathologisation of the working class and the poor, in the context of what we are what are assumed to be healthy lifestyle practices. But I'm now retired from active research and my theoretical education has largely had to rely on working with my younger colleagues and doctoral students as they explore theories that will serve them well. For example, as I um, said before, the theories of socio materiality and affect that are beginning to have some purchase in HPE scholarship, which, which have limited recognition for how they might be utilized to address the wicked problems of teaching and learning in HPE. But there are some examples, and I note again, examples um, in the presentations at um, the SIG at this AERA. And as I looked through some of the, um, the journals, the latest kind of papers in the journals, Uh, I found a paper which stood out for me partly because of its title, but which demonstrates that there is is some very good work being done um, using social theory in our field. So looking at, um, as I looked through some of the latest papers in Sport Eden and Society, I came across this paper from our Spanish, Swedish and New Zealand colleagues. So certainly looking elsewhere, Um, an outward entitled, Making the Familiar Strange, a narrative about Spanish children's experiences of physical inactivity to reconsider the ability of physical education to produce healthy citizens. And I'll just read a little bit of the abstract. The aim of this paper is to explore Spanish children's knowledge and experiences of schooling, PE and physical in brackets in activity in relation to understanding how their bodies and subjectivities are governed by the work of neoliberalism. And they go on to say they're going to analyse the, and identify the socio cultural and economic discourses that surround these children's daily lives in Spain. In concluding this presentation, I want to go back to a comment that Cathy Ennis wrote in her paper. You should expect to devote a substantial amount of time to thoroughly understanding the framework you intend to use. She goes on to talk about, and I think this is very pertinent, um, the time and space required for thinking about and understanding theory. She says, we spent many seminars discussing theoretical frameworks and models, understanding the elements of the theory and how components were interrelated. It became evident that theoretical frameworks were powerful organizers of ideas that structure our thinking in ways rarely approached in work with single isolated variables. The kinds of opportunities to meet and discuss seem to be very limited in the contemporary university, even more so with the extra demands for more flexible forms of teaching because of COVID. But I would argue that they are worth making time for. They feed the soul, they inspire new ways of thinking, and they Get help you to meet and uh, and talk with others and actually just see how other people are working with different approaches and different forms of theory, so that you're not talking all the time to people who think and work like yourselves. And finally, I finish with the words of Richard Edwards in um, a posting on the Theory Lab website, which unfortunately didn't go past its. Um, 2013 date, it would have been very interesting if it had, he argues that theory must be more than a matter of significance and representation, but is also a matter of substance and intervention. That rather than being a tug of war between theory and practice, what matters is what theory mobilizes us. There is nothing as practical as good theory. Thank you very much for Listening, um, and now I'd love to have your questions and comments, um, and have an opportunity to interact with you. So, all right, um, so I'm not sure how
3: the microphone is going to work. Um, if you want to come up here to ask questions, uh, that would be great, or talk really loud and I'll try to repeat. So, Jan, just let me know um, what you are and are not able to hear, okay? Um, and let me see if I can. There we go. OK, so does anybody have any questions, comments? Yes, Karen.
1: Dr. Wright, thank you so much for your brilliant talk. My question is to those of us that are uh, preparing uh, young scholars in, or aspiring young scholars in PEAT, uh, if you could give us uh, one piece of advice about training doctoral students to use theory, what would it be?
2: Um, I actually think like I would recommend um, Jean Anion's book for a start because it, it has examples of how her doctoral students um, use theory. So I, I always, I like using models um, and not in the classic PE term, but I, I, I think it's really worth looking at how people use theory um, and theory that is relevant to those students. So, and discussing that, that would be um, my suggestion.
1: Thank you. Other questions? Yes, Nate. Okay, come on. Hi, yeah, Nate. You, Jen. Hi, Nate. Hi, <laughs> Nate.
0: Hi, Jan. <laughs> Jan it's, it's brilliant. Sorry for not so,
2: mentioning you. <laughs> uh,
0: so, <laughs> it's great to see you on camera and uh, And, uh, you know, as as you know, you have been so influential in my work over the years. And, uh, you know, and I have, I so appreciate the the point about theory and and having your work driven by theory. And um, I think one of the things that has uh, really exemplified this world over the last couple of years with this pandemic and all the craziness is Also, the ethics and the morality that underlie the theory that you subscribe to, and that you know, you can have a wonderful theory that is absent of the morality and ethics, and that's really problematic when you get into a social situation, a global situation where, um, you know, we're in a world we've never been in before, and I think the idea of theory has, uh, has kind of gotten thrown on its head in some respects, and I'd love to hear you, uh, your perspective on, uh, you know, the notion of theory as in relation to what what we've seen over the last couple of years.
2: Um, thanks, Nate. Like, one of the things that comes through from nearly all of those key Um, people like Sykes and Edwards and Ball is about being reflexive. And I think that's what they mean by being reflexive. What are the consequences? Like Part of the social theory is always about what are the effects? You're always asking, so what are the effects? Um, So that's a question you ask of the data and of discourses, but it should be also something that you are asking of your own use of theory what are the effects on those that it affects, like students, um, student uh, teachers, and so on. So first of all, it's about not just using theory for its own sake, but actually looking at the consequences of using particular kinds of theory. And that includes, um, I think, you know, looking at Edwards' one, is it's not just using theory for its own sake, but looking at theory that will help us to understand uh, To make a difference in terms of social justice and particularly um, one of the the, some of the um, presentations and readings that I was looking at just to see how people in education are writing about COVID for instance. Um, Jane Kenway and Debbie Epstein writing about um, you know they're using social theory to look at how COVID impacts in terms of social justice and how it um, amplifies so much of the so many of the issues and frank ferrudi who presented um, on covid um he, he's also n- using you know sort of the theoretical resources of talking about neoliberalism and so on to actually to examine how um, the the implications of covid um, in in education and i think that's one of the things we need to be reflecting on um, we're kind of at the point where we should be asking questions about how has uh, the kinds of practices around COVID impacted um, social justice issues in physical education um, because I think they're the new moral and ethical you know that they, they, that's a moral and ethical question did that help Night no, did I answer no question?
0: So I will I will just end by saying thank you, Jen. That was wonderful. Uh, and it's so wonderful that you provided uh, this you provided this scholarly lecture I and mean, it's so overdue and uh it was so nice to see you well, healthy, and
1: thanks for participating. Uh,
2: thank you. Thanks, Knight. It's lovely to, to see you. <laughs> Any other questions
3: or comments? Okay. Oh, Katie. Yeah, go ahead, Katie. Hi,
2: Katie.
3: Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. Thank you for um, letting me attend virtually. I'm I'm feeling a lot of um FOMO not not being an AERM person this year. Um, thank you so much, Dan. That was a, an amazing talk. I always just find I've got hundreds of notes. I always find your work so inspiring. Um, I was thinking about the connections between where you started with in terms of thinking about the push in the academy to interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity and in our part of the world that really includes a push not just to to engage with that as an individual but to work in teams, um, teams of researchers across different different disciplines and different faculties. And I wonder if you have any comments about the kind of tensions there and how you work with that when you're working with people from very different theoretical perspectives and different ontologies. And I know you work with teams. How do you, do you have advice for us of how to work in really um, productive ways across disciplines when there's a clash of ontologies?
2: Um, I I guess um, the times when I've worked uh, across disciplines, it's, it's about relationships for a start and i do find and we've talked about this before that it's often um, the researchers that are working from maybe a more social theory social justice perspective that have to be gentle and give a little you know so that's that's the first thing i think it's not going in there and trying to change the world or be rah-rah but work out how you can um, work in the interstices and ask, raise different questions. I think it's about suggesting questions, and and I think most of um, the interdisciplinary work now. Um, there's such a, a so much on. Um, we need to have uh, another perspective. We need to have a qualitative perspective. Sometimes it's an add-on, but it's still there, and it's working with that. What I would recommend, and I, I was going to refer to to this in the thing, was Jenny Gore's. Um, Radford address. Now, Jenny's one of um, our exes, and she's um, now a very well known researcher in um, Australia and internationally, but she, in her Radford address, she talks about um, reconciling differences within educational research. And as an example, she gives um, the research team she's working in uses both randomized controlled trials and um, post-structuralist theory. So she talks about traversing the train from post-structuralism to randomised control trials and and in research on um, colleagues with student student aspirations and teacher development. And I I think it's actually, I found it a really nice paper because it, it points out that it's not about quantitative and qualitative, like feminists have always needed quantitative research to be able to make a case about our particular positions in society in so many ways so it's about saying thank you you know yes thank you for this let's use use this aspect to answer these questions but we should be asking these questions as well and also I can explain some of the phenomena that you're um you're finding so I, I think there's um it, it uh, first of all it's about relationships and being managing <laughs> those relationships and and but also not feeling that um th- positions other than your own are the wrong ones or ones that you can't work with or too being too precious
3: thank you any other questions or comments All right. Well, let's thank Jan one more time for a wonderful presentation.
2: Thank you.